Good morning, church. I'd like to begin with a question that is going to get us all immediately engaged in the topic of our biblical text this morning. Are you ready for this? All right, here we go. What is your favorite thing about the United States government? (laughs) Turn to your neighbor and tell them right now. What's your favorite thing about the United States government? I know, you're excited now. You can't wait. All right, my follow-up question. Follow-up question. What is your least favorite thing about the United States government? Turn to your neighbor. Tell them right now. Good, good. Which one of those two were easier to answer? Now, if this is your first time at Riverstone Church... Please rest assured, the goal today is not to get political. I'm not looking to advocate for one party or the other. Uh, That's not the point of the text. What we do here at Riverstone is we work our way through books of the Bible, and we let the message of the text become the message from the pulpit. And since we've been studying through 1 Peter, Peter in chapter 2, which is where we're at today, begins to talk about a believer's relationship to their government which means that's what we're going to have to talk about this morning. And I want to warn you up front, this is not going to be a very comfortable sermon. A lot of what you're about to hear is probably going to push against your sensibilities as an American. Some of it won't be easy. But you don't pay me to tickle your ears. You pay me to preach the Word of God. And the Word has some very difficult things to say sometimes that are going to challenge our individualistic American sensibilities. But that's okay. The reason it's going to challenge us is because many of us have unfortunately replaced our identity as elect exiles with our identity as Americans. That's ungodly and sinful. Last week we observed Memorial Day. My family did indeed observe it. We talked around our dinner table and about the soldiers who died protecting and fighting for our freedoms here as Americans. We prayed for our military during our devotions that evening. So I want to say it's okay to be an American. It's okay to enjoy and to celebrate being an American. The prophet Jeremiah once told the Israelites who were about to go into exile to Babylon, he said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. If Jeremiah, the prophet, can tell the Israelites that it's right and proper to seek the welfare of that evil country that they were going into, how much more is it right and honorable for us to do the same with our country? But we are not Americans first. We are Christians first. That's our primary identity. Remember, Peter began his letter by calling the believers elect exiles. They were elected by God to be believers, They were spiritual exiles, heavenly-minded people living on earth. Their perspective had to extend beyond their earthly life to an eternal existence. They are elect exiles. Part of the reason Peter's writing to these believers, who were also literally scattered throughout the ancient world, was that they were undergoing severe persecution. Peter was writing at the height of Nero's persecution of believers. We have a picture of the bust of Nero up here. 
By the way, I was doing some research this week into Nero, and I found scholars uh, used this bust to recreate what he probably looked like in real life. Can we show a picture of that, uh, that recreation that they, they pulled up? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a striking resemblance. A striking resemblance, I would say. Nero was a bad, bad dude, right? I mean, this man that you see on the screen tortured Christians for fun. He, he led the Roman Empire to persecute Christians. Systematic, government-funded persecution of believers. It was dangerous to be a Christian in Peter's day. That's the situation in which he was writing it. It was a true anti-Christian agenda. And we've got to keep that in place uh, or in mind as we read this text of Scripture. So here are the questions that we're going to wrestle with today. And by the way, I don't think Benjamin's in this service, is he? Benjamin, are you here? Don't spoil it for him, okay? <laughs> don't spoil it. Here's what we're going to wrestle with today, some of the questions. What does it look like to be a Christian in an ungodly government? We're going to wrestle with the question, when is it the right time to disobey the government? And we're going to wrestle with the question, do we support the government even when it's doing ungodly things? I found as a pastor, one of the most challenging times in my pastoral ministry was during the COVID-19 epidemic. I'm sure many pastors, in fact, I was just talking to a pastor this week who said the same exact thing. We were in different states ministering different times uh, or different places, I should say, exactly the same kind of story that we both encountered. All around the world, all around the country, it was an incredibly divisive time, even within churches. And we found that the virus wasn't even the most difficult thing to deal with. Rather, everyone's opinions about the virus was what was difficult. Maybe you found that true here as well. On one side, mask mandates were for protection. They were for health. If you didn't wear one, you didn't love your neighbor. On the other side, mask mandates were government overreach. It was all about control. The virus was a hoax. And every church had both of those opinions within it. And neither side was generally very charitable to the other side. At least that's what we found in our ministry. And I remember as a pastor being very challenged by not only trying to help my congregation love and respect one another, especially when they had different opinions, but also by how we relate to the government even when we don't agree with what they're doing. That was a challenge. At the time we were going through this, I was living and pastoring in Michigan. And in the first stage of that pandemic, the government shut down everything in the state that wasn't necessary, including any elective medical procedures that did not preserve the health and safety of the patient. Now, among the procedures that were not stopped was abortion. Abortion, in Governor Whitmer's uh, opinion, was, and I'm quoting her here, abortion was life-sustaining and therefore had to continue. And I had to ask the question and wrestle with that as a pastor. How do we support a government when they're making those kind of decisions for us? What do we do about that? So the text today that we're going to look at is quite relevant, isn't it? It's, it's also quite difficult. It's going to challenge us in many ways, unexpectedly sometimes. We have a couple ushers that have Bibles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We're happy to give you one. And this is our gift to you if you need a Bible to take home with you today. But we're going to be, begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, 
or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, I warned you this would not be comfortable. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. This may be one of the most challenging commands in Scripture to obey in today's world, especially if you're on Twitter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit yourselves. I checked the Greek this week on this one, and I gotta, I gotta just, I'll be up front with you, I was looking for loopholes. I was. I was hoping to be able to stand up here and say something like, well, you know, in the Greek, submit only means submit when you feel like it. Or submit only means submit when you agree with the decisions that they're making. Submit only means submit when the governor is making economically intelligent decisions. But guess what? You know what submit means? It means submit. Place yourself under their authority, follow their leadership, and you see the next phrase that goes along with that command, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. That means that when you subject yourself to the authority of your governing leaders in the way that Peter's commanding here, you honor God. When you honor the human leaders in your government, that is a means of worshiping God. Let me put this in a different way for you. It's an act of worship to pay your taxes on time and in full. It's an act of worship to be respectful to the police officer that pulls you over. It's an act of worship to not give the county inspector a difficult time, even if you don't agree with the decision he's making. And to be clear, it's not worship of the government or worship of the police or worship of that inspector. It's an act of worship to God when we submit ourselves to the human authorities that he has put in place. God is honored by that behavior. Now, in a minute, I'm going to qualify and clarify exactly how that works. Because this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about this subject. But before I do that, notice that other phrase attached to that first sentence. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Literally, the phrase is to every human created thing. This includes all legitimate human authorities. That includes governing officials. That includes your boss. That includes church elders, children to their parents. We're going to see in a few weeks even wives to their husbands. Paul, Peter mentions a king in authority here. He says, uh, submit yourselves to the king. That's the highest authority in the land in his day. And then he mentions more local governors as well. So from the king down to the local governors. And what's interesting is that Peter says these governors, your local authorities, are sent by him. By who? By God. God put those authorities there in their place. I'm going to come back to that thought in just a minute. But those authorities are to exercise rule by either punishing evil or by praising those who do right. Now, we oftentimes think of the government in the terms of like punishing the evil. Back in the, the time of Peter, when the Roman government was in, in force, they did a pretty good job at praising those who did right. They had a few systems in place that would uh, encourage people to, to do well for their government. And when they did, either they got a tax break or they got some sort of praise or blessing or whatever it might be. It's kind of like if you've ever had car insurance where if, if you go a certain amount of years without any points on your license, it might drop the insurance a little bit for you. It's kind of what the Roman government did for their people. That's what a government should do. Now, I'm positive here that Peter is not imagining that every government is always going to do this perfectly. Remember, he's writing during the height of Emperor Nero's persecution. 
He's not saying this is what the government always does. He's saying this is what the government ought to do. Punish evil and encourage good. The law should have a positive effect on society. A while back, I was reading this interesting article that uh, reported the correlation between the death penalty and murders in a state. And what they found was that the more the law upheld the death penalty, the less likely there were to be murders per capita in each state. The law had a role in deterring crime if it was placed in a rightful way in that state. Now, as I've said, this isn't all the Bible has to say about this subject. Uh, We don't have time to do a deep dive into all that the scriptures have to say about the Christians and the government, but at the risk of biting off more than I can chew, what I want to do is I think it might be helpful to summarize a few other key principles that we see in the other context of scripture. So a brief topical study within this text Uh, that helps us to give Peter's commands some canonical context, some context of the rest of Scripture. So I want to share with you five key principles that summarize a biblical view of the government. So five key principles, and by the way, you're going to see many of these in the text of Peter today, but some of these also stretch outside, so that way we have a better understanding of how this functions within the rest of Scripture. I owe a great deal, by the way, to Wayne Grudem's Christian ethics uh, and his thinking on this issue. These principles that I'm going to share are drawn from Scripture, uh, but I would encourage you, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, he's got a great chapter on Christian ethics on the government. So let's take a look. Number one, five key principles that summarize how a believer and the government should relate. Number one, God exercises his sovereign pleasure over the government and its rulers. That's clear all throughout Scripture. We see this right here in 1 Peter. Governors are sent by God to rule. The book of Daniel tells us that God removes kings and sets up kings. We saw in Ezra, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send the Jews back to their homeland. Even the individual actions of kings is controlled and directed by God. Proverbs tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So God is the sovereign king over any nation, over any land, and over any ruler. He decides which nations and which kings rule and even what they're allowed to do. Now, because of that, second, we should treat government leaders with respect, knowing that they act as God's servant. Again, we see this in 1 Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, king, governor, and so on. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Let me read to you a little passage from Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. A few verses later in verse 6, he continues his thought, and he says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Because God is the ultimate supreme king in power, from God's perspective, as he puts servants in place, we ought to respect them and obey the laws that are in our land, even the bad ones. To resist their authority is to resist God himself. Now, however, 
There are exceptions to that. And this is part of where we're going to kind of step outside of 1 Peter for a moment and make sure we understand this in context. Here's what Peter doesn't touch on too much that I think is important for us to know. Number three, principle number three. Christians should exercise civil disobedience if man's laws either restricts us from obeying God's laws or if it asks us to do something contrary to God's law. Civil disobedience means when you don't obey your government. This is when it's okay to disobey. Exodus chapter 1 is a great example of this. You might remember this story where Pharaoh commands that all the newborn baby boys, the Hebrew babies, should be murdered right out of the womb. Obviously not a godly law. In fact, if you obeyed it, you would be disobeying God. Well, two Hebrew midwives decide, even though this is a government-mandated law by the Pharaoh, it violates God's law, and therefore, they won't do it. And as a result, the Bible tells us that God blesses these two women. God's law trumps man's law. If our government ever says that in order for us to stay tax-exempt, we must be willing to promote and endorse the LGBTQ movement, gay marriage, whatever it might be, that's when God's law trumps man's law. We don't comply, even if it means civil penalties upon our church. Now keep in mind that disagreement with a law does not constitute proper grounds for disobedience of the law. It's not simply if you don't like the law, you get to disobey the law as a Christian. God's not saying if you agree with it, then follow it. God's saying follow it unless it directly contradicts or stops you from obeying the word of God. I don't like the 25 mile per hour speed limit on Oxford Valley Road. It's annoying. I feel like I can go a lot faster than 25 safely, don't you? I don't like paying taxes to my government, especially when I see how much waste there is and some of the causes that they put my money to. But if Paul told the Romans to pay taxes to the Roman government, how much more should I be paying taxes to my government? Just because I don't like the law doesn't mean I have the freedom to disobey the law. Do you see how this works? Now, all of that doesn't mean that we just sit around and take it either. Number four, this again goes a little bit outside of 1 Peter, but we find this in Scripture. Whenever possible, Christians should seek civil reform that aligns the government with Christian values. If you can change the law to align with Christian values and principles, do it. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar at one point, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. He was encouraging a pagan king to act more godly and help his nation to be more godly. As I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah told those who were in exile to seek the welfare of their city. Great example of this in, in our history is, uh, you might know the story of William Wilberforce. He was a British politician who used his influence in government to establish the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. What he did was he used the proper processes of the law to make godlier laws. We need more Christian politicians like that. If you are able, help change the laws to align with biblical principles. Now, number five, finally, Christians should take advantage of civil, liber civil liberties for the benefit of the gospel. I don't know how much longer free speech will be a thing in America for Christians. When you speak against sin, oftentimes we find today people are calling us bigots, they're calling us haters, 
It's hate speech. All sorts of names and accusations are being uh, slandered against us. And, and, and there's a chance that some of this might end up being a crime. I would encourage you, believer, to speak up now for the sake of the gospel while you can still do so openly. Speak up now. I recently read through the book of Acts to my kids during our family devotions. Acts 25, the Apostle Paul leverages his Roman citizenship to advance the gospel into higher places in the Roman government. He uses the freedoms he has as a citizen to get the gospel out further. And I would encourage you to do the same. Use your rights to spread the word of God while you still can. Now, I recognize that some of that kind of pushes the limit of what Peter is saying in this text, but I hope what it does is at least gives us some context and helps us understand what Peter means when he says, submit to every human institution. And Peter has more to say, so let's take a look back in 1 Peter 2, jumping back into verse 15. He says, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. How many of you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, Peter just told us what it is right here. We all want clear direction from God, don't we? Well, here's at least part of it. God's will is that you do good when submitting yourself to the governing authorities in your life. And the result of you doing that is that other people will end up possibly praising God or being silenced in their accusations against you. Here's what I think Peter means by that. If you, if you flip back to verse 12, which we looked at last week, you'll see Peter encourages believers to keep their behavior excellent. And he says keep your behavior excellent because when people try to slander you, they're not going to be able to find anything wrong and then they end up praising your good deeds instead. Great example of this in scripture is, remember the, the story of Mordecai and Haman in the book of Esther? Um, Mordecai is the good guy, I guess you could say, in this story, at least this part of the story. Haman is like the bad guy. Haman wants Mordecai to be uh, brought down. He wants to get rid of this man in any way he can. But Mordecai does good for his government. He saves the king's life. And as Haman is trying to accuse him and put him down, the government ends up praising Mordecai and putting him on a pedestal, and Haman is silenced. I think that's kind of what Peter's getting at here. When the gospel transforms your heart, you're going to find that its impact, because of the way you act, extends outside your home to your community, even to your government. People will look at you differently. And hopefully, because of your righteousness, they will praise your works instead of having reason to condemn you. Peter adds to this thought a little bit of a paradox in verse 16. He says in verse 16, Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. This is a bit of a paradox. You are free, he's saying, but you're going to use your freedom not to do evil, but use your freedom to act like slaves. Isn't that interesting? Peter's concerned that believers would think, well, I'm a Christian. I don't have to follow the laws of my government. I have, a, I have a higher authority. I'm a citizen of heaven, not of earth, and therefore I'm free from these man-made laws. You ever run across someone with that kind of thinking? Peter says, that's not godly. We are not free in every sense of the word. Instead, we are slaves to Christ. The New American Standard Version that we're reading here translates that bond slaves 
That kind of softens the impact of the term a little bit. We are indentured servants to God. We are slaves of the Lord. And by being slaves of God, we are bound to follow the laws that he has given us and even the authorities that he's put in place in our life. God has put these governing officials in charge for us to submit and obey. And we don't always like everything that they do and say and the laws that they create, and that's fine. We should pray for our leaders. We should even pray for their repentance in certain areas. We should seek to elect godly leaders. But we are still called to respect and submit and obey their authority in our lives, whether we like it or not. Peter punctuates these commands with four brief commands to follow up. Verse 17, he says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We could have spent the whole Sunday morning just in that verse right there. Four commands, all quite simple to understand, but not so easy to obey sometimes. First, he says, honor all people. Don't, don't you wish that Peter would have just dropped the all from that sentence there? Honor people. You get to choose which ones you want to honor. The all is what makes it challenging, isn't it? Think about this in context. Think about this in, in the nitty-gritty of life. Put it into concrete terms. Honor Nero. Honor Biden. Honor Fetterman. Honor your boss. Honor your annoying neighbor. Honor your ex. It gets real pretty fast, doesn't it? When you put this into concrete terms, this was convicting for me as I read this and thought about this this week. To honor someone means that you don't necessarily have to agree with them. You can even voice disagreement with them in a respectful way. But you have to do so respectfully. You respect the authority that God has put in your life. The word in Greek to honor can literally mean to assign proper value to someone or something. You value their opinion, you value their position, even if you don't agree with it. So let's get real again, church. Think back through your last dozen or so social media posts. Do you honor everyone in those posts? If not, perhaps some repentance after church may be needed. Honor all people, he says. Love the brotherhood. This now brings it into the church. So he was focused on the government, on those outside. Now he's bringing it inside, your brothers and sister. Now he turns his sights towards one another. Love each other. Love each other in annual meetings. Love each other by being patient and kind to each other. Love each other by not keeping records of wrongs against your fellow believers. Love each other by seeking each other's welfare above your own. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. He says, fear God. We've talked about this a bit in 1 Peter. We respectfully obey and we follow the Lord. We reverence him. Fear in God is demonstrated by our obedience to the Lord. And he says, honor the king. Remember, the king in Peter's day was King Nero. Nero, the Christian killer, Nero. Honor him, Peter says. Can you imagine? This perspective should characterize believers today in the way that we relate to our governing officials. If Peter can write this about Nero, how much more should we be honoring our president, our governor, our elected officials? 
Let's just make this concrete again. When the police officer writes you a ticket because you were speeding the church, you were so eager to hear your pastor's sermon, even if you don't agree with it, gracefully accept it, knowing that he or she was put in that position of authority over you by the Lord. And by respecting them, you're honoring and worshiping God. When your country elects a new president, maybe one that you didn't vote for, whether or not you agree with their policies, prayerfully and Facebookfully honor him in the Lord. When the empire strikes back, freely submit to the God-ordained authority figures in your life. Because by doing so, you're honoring God. Now this is controversial. This is, quite frankly, not very comfortable to talk about here. But Peter doesn't even stop there. As if that's not enough, now he moves on to the topic of slavery. Now you might think that's kind of an abrupt transition. What, what, does, what does slavery have to do with government? Well, actually, it's not really the topic of slavery and government. It's the topic of submission. And in the topic of submission, under that heading, he addresses government. He addresses slavery. He's going to address the household. He's going to address a couple other things as well. Peter's main command is to submit to those in authority over you. Keeping that in mind, look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, our translation is using the word servants. That's a good translation. It's a household slave. But a household servant back then, nine times out of ten, was indeed called a slave today. We are talking about slavery here. It's important to distinguish between first century slavery, that's when Peter was writing, first century A.D., from 21st century slavery, from even 19th century chattel slavery. Back when Peter was writing, slavery wasn't just an issue of race. It wasn't even always an issue of one country dominating another. You could sell yourself into slavery in order to pay off your debts. It wasn't even for your life. You could sell yourself into slavery for a time. In fact, at times, that was the more economically feasible thing for you to do. You could sell your children into slavery if you needed to for a time. I'm not trying to give you any ideas or anything like that. And sometimes your master would be benevolent, and sometimes your master might not be. There, of course, were masters that were no good back then, masters that would abuse their slaves, that would treat them like an object instead of a human being created in the image of God. But here what Peter does is he cuts through all of that, and notice how he directly addresses the slave himself. He doesn't address the master. He talks to the slave, humanizing that person. Now, still, when we read passages like this, sometimes we wonder, well, why didn't Peter just come out and condemn slavery as a whole? Why, why doesn't he just say, slave owners, set my people free? A few things I want to say about this. It's a good question. Peter's point is not so much about the practice of slavery. It's a word to those who need to submit. Peter could have said, Nero, repent. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he speaks to Christians living under an oppressive government. The point is not try to change your situation. The point is, what do you do when you can't change your situation? How do you submit in a situation like that? Now, the other thing I want to point out here is that God's lack of condemnation in this passage to slavery isn't the same as God commending the practice of slavery. Just because Peter doesn't come right out and say, don't have slaves, doesn't mean that you should have slaves. 
Again, by analogy, Peter also doesn't come right out and say, Nero, stop persecuting Christians. But we know that's ungodly. Clearly that's wrong, even if he doesn't say it outright. So we don't want to impose on this text what we want it to say. We want to listen to the text and listen to what it is actually saying to us. Servants should submit to their masters with all respect, even to those who are unreasonable, he says. It's easy to submit to those who are good and benevolent and nice and kind and fair and just. But what about those who are unreasonable? Unreasonable can be translated crooked or perverse. In fact, the Greek word is scolios, where we get our English word scoliosis, a crooked spine. People who are clearly ungodly and twisted in their ways. That's what Peter's talking about here. Endure those sorrows even while doing good. Be godly even while those who are in charge over you are not godly. Now, I've heard this applied to employer-employee relationships. Not many of us, hopefully none of us, are in an actual slave-master relationship, but most of us are in an employee-employer relationship. Does this apply to that? Let me say two things about that. First, serving a manager or serving a boss is not the same as a slave serving a master. We don't want to trivialize slavery, even first century slavery. After an eight-hour shift, you get to go home. If you don't like your boss, you have the freedom to quit. You have a workers' union that, that can stick up for you. Bosses aren't allowed to beat their employees anymore. Right? So there's a lot of differences between a slave-master relationship and a, and a boss-employee relationship today. We have to keep that in mind. But as we keep that in mind, second, it actually, I think, helps us apply this principle. If these commands are true of first-century slavery, which was undoubtedly worse than any relationship that you have with your boss today, how much more should we be submissive to those in authority over us? Do you see how that works? Again, it's not just the bosses that you like. I, I like my bosses. Right now, I'm in the unique position of having several bosses, some at church and some in the university where I work. It's not a burden to serve them. And I'm not just saying that because most of them are sitting here in the room with me right now. <laughs> but I have been in situations where I don't like my bosses, where I, I was feeling like they were unfair and unjust. What do you do then? Many of you are in that situation right now. What do you do? You submit with all respect. That's easier said than done, isn't it? You submit. Think about it as a way of serving the Lord. Your boss is breathing down your neck, demanding more work than you can handle. They're never satisfied with what you do. Maybe they even go so far as to curse you out and to grumble at you in public. What do you do? You submit with all respect. Give them no reason to grumble. Return their unpleasantness with love. Don't talk bad about them behind their back. That's how you honor them. Pray for them on a regular basis. And you know what? You are free to look for another job in the meantime. There's no, no scripture that I can tell that, that tells you you have to stay in that same position always and forevermore. But while you're there, submit with all respect. And that'll be a great example to your boss and to the people around you. Now, wonderfully, Peter ends with a great motivating promise for all of this. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, For this, so this behavior, this finds favor 
If for the sake of conscience toward, uh, conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. According to Peter, there's two reasons that you suffer, at least two reasons that he treats here. You either suffer because you sin or you suffer unjustly when you're persecuted. So let's throw this in a work environment for you again. If you get caught looking at your phone when you should be working and you get in trouble, you can't come home and complain, I'm being persecuted. You can't whine about it and say, why me, oh Lord, why me? It's not how it works. You got caught sinning and therefore you got a consequence. But maybe you're mocked by your coworkers for being a Christian. When someone else mocks your boss behind their back and you decide, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to honor them instead, maybe your coworkers start turning against you and mocking and persecuting you. Praise God. You have been counted worthy to suffer for his sake. That's what Peter's getting at here. And Peter promises you will find favor with God. Isn't that cool? You know why that's cool? You know why you find favor with God when you are persecuted unjustly and you endure it? Because now you have something in common with Jesus Christ. That's why this is a blessing. Jesus endured unjust suffering. He did not deserve the cross. He did not deserve our sin. But in his great love, he patiently endured that sorrow, and by his wounds, you are healed. That's what we just celebrated together in communion. You know what stops us from responding with grace when we suffer unjustly? Usually it's either our pride or it's when we lose focus on Christ and that gospel. When we suffer in this life, we are sharing something unique with Jesus Christ that we can get through no other spiritual discipline. Suffering, did you know this? Suffering is something we can only do on this side of eternity. You ever think about this? You don't get the privilege of suffering for Jesus in the new earth to come. Nobody in eternity future is going to persecute you. You only have this life to suffer for God. This is it. Some of us are so quiet in our faith that we will unfortunately never get to experience suffering for Jesus in this life. We will never share that unique bond with our Savior. So that's why it's a blessing. And that's why there's favor when you do go through that kind of persecution. Next week, we're going to finish 1 Peter 2 by focusing on the example of Christ. Jesus suffered for you, leaving you that ultimate example to follow. Maybe you look at your relationship with your boss or with your government as a relationship of sorrow and suffering. Peter's commands are so relevant for you today. They're relevant for me. Submit to every human authority with all respect, he says. Do right so you can silence the foolish people around you. Honor all people. Love your fellow believers. Fear God. That's what Peter's commanding us to do. I'm going to pray. And after my prayer, we're going to ask that our elders come on up. They're going to be spread all throughout the room, actually. If you want to take a moment and pray with one of our leaders, maybe there's something going on in your heart. Maybe there's something that you just need prayer for, specifically, individually. I'd encourage you before you head out the door, connect with one of them and take a few minutes to pray together. Let me pray for you and us as we wrestle through these commands from Peter. 
God, I thank you for the example of Jesus Christ suffering for us, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I pray that you would help us, help us as Christians to be respectful, to be obedient, and to be submissive, even when we don't necessarily agree with the decisions that our government is making. Lord, I pray that by doing so, others would look at us and they would be silenced in their accusations against us. I pray that they would look at us and they'd be encouraged to follow Jesus Christ as the example that he set before us. And Lord, I pray that as a result, we would see great change in this world. I pray that more disciples would be made and I pray that more Christians would be made as well. Lord, help us to do so even when we don't agree, even when we have bosses that are not respectful towards us, that are crooked and perverse. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to do what Peter's commanding us to do. And Lord, as we look to the cross, continue to motivate us through the gospel. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and his coming return. We thank you, Lord, for all that we've seen today. Be with us as we go now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here today. I'd encourage you to connect with one of our elders and pray.